Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 123. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on July 24th, 2023, in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism, or as little of it as we can arrange. Before we jump into the history fun, a couple of announcements mostly relevant for those of you listening in close to real time. First, it was my great honor last week to be appointed to the Board of Directors of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, known as FIRE. FIRE has become the premier free speech advocacy organization, devoted not only to fighting legal battles against the suppression of speech or censorship, but also to strengthening our long national culture of open expression. I'm sure that long-standing and attentive listeners have perceived that this is a cause that means a lot to me. I'll put a link in the episode notes on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, to the announcement on the FIRE website. There you can subscribe to FIRE's various communications and even donate to its very worthy mission. Second, I'm about to embark on a four-week summer road trip to the Adirondacks and back with my wife and our dog, Hubble. It will involve a couple of weeks at the aforementioned secure, undisclosed location outside Tupper Lake, New York, among other stops. I will bring my microphone and some fodder for a few episodes, the usual, you know, tote bag full of books, but new material will probably roll out at slightly wider intervals than usual usual being lately about every 10 days. That said, if there are listeners who want to grab a beer in the upper Adirondacks during the first 10 days of August, please get in touch by the usual means and we can see if we can work something out. There's a great craft brewery in Tupper Lake, Racket River Brewing, which is a regular haunt for me. And it is also easy to pop over to Saranac or Lake Placid or Long Lake, especially on a rainy day when outdoor sportiness is off the table. As we covered last time, on June 20th, 1632, the Charter of Maryland received the royal seal and was issued to 26-year-old Cecil Calvert, the second Baron Baltimore and the first Lord Proprietary, Earl Palatine of the provinces of Maryland and Avalon in America. His father George had, as we learned, died before all the bureaucratic niceties could be concluded. The newly entitled Cecil would pick up the flag and ensure that Maryland would be an actual colony, not just another project on paper, of which there had been many in the early years of England's settlement of the New World. This was a remarkable achievement, and not only because Cecil was only 26 in the summer of 1632. Kids today, blah, 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 why can't you do so much? Anyway, our fault. He had to occupy his proprietary in the face of determined political opposition from Virginians. They would spend most of the next 18 months, in fact, trying to prevent Cecil from sending over settlers. Allies of the Virginians spread scurrilous rumors, which Cecil had to stamp out. For example, they cooked up the story that Cecil had arranged to carry Catholic nuns to Spain and bring soldiers from there to the New World. They untruthfully told the English revenuers that the expedition had not obtained the necessary custom seals for his two ships, the Ark and the Dove, and so forth. Such weasels. 
All of this had at least two consequences, both of which worked out for the Calverts. The first was that the sailing of the Ark and the Dove was delayed from the summer of 1633 to the end of November. This meant, as we shall see, that our heroes would reach Maryland just as spring was springing, rather than in the dead of winter. The second consequence was that Cecil would conclude, reluctantly, that he would need to stay in England to fend off political and legal attacks on his charter. He would assign his brother Leonard, only a year younger, to establish the necessary facts on the ground. Cecil had issued a prospectus designed to attract both settlers and capital. I'll spare you all the ins and outs and what have yous, but the description of the company is delightful, at least to me. So, quote, The climb of this country is confessed the very best, lying betwixt 38 and 40 degrees northerly latitude, about that of Seville, Sicilia, Jerusalem, and the best parts of Arabia Felix, apparently that was Yemen, China, etc., the air, serene and gentle, not so hot as Florida and old Virginia, nor so cold as New England, but between them both, having the good of each and the ill of neither. On the east side, it had the great ocean. On the west, an infinite continent reaching to the China Sea. It hath two goodly bays, both rich bosoms of fish, the one called Chesapeake, 12 miles over between two lands, running from south to north for 103 score miles, harborable for ships of great burden, full of sundry large islands, good for hay and pasture, whereas a rich fishing of bass. The other called Delaware, whereas a fishing of cod all the year long, though it can be made only in the colder months, for in the hotter it cannot take salt. The reason of this great fishing is, for that the northeast wind blowing ever constant from the Canary Islands rolls the ocean, and the fish with it, into Mexico Bay, where finding no passage south nor west is forced up north with a strong current, and sweepeth along with it great shoals of fish by the coast of Florida, Virginia, Maryland, New England, and Newfoundland, which fleeing the whales who feed upon them, make to the land and take the protection of shallower waters and inlets thereof, where they are easily taken. Back to me, some of that is obviously spot on, and some of it is a bit dubious, but you get the point. Then, as now, in the writing of prospectuses, stock promoters accentuated the positive. The Calvert ships, the Ark and the Dove, were 360 to 400 tons and 40 to 60 tons, respectively. Before his death, George Calvert had recorded that the Ark was 360 tons and the Dove 60 tons, but Jeremy, the maritime docent at St. Mary's City, Maryland archaeological site, told me back in April that there was better evidence that the Ark was about 400 tons, pretty big for the time, and the Dove only 40. I'm going with Jeremy because nearly as I could tell, he knew more than anybody else about those two ships. Indeed, he had been part of the team that built a replica of the Dove, which you can visit if you go to St. Mary's City. The passengers added up to about 20 gentlemen, 
as many as two to three hundred laboring men and a couple of Jesuit priests who very helpfully wrote stuff down. Virtually everybody was on the ark. The dove had a crew of only seven, plus a boy of eight years old or so, who no doubt made himself useful, but per Jeremy did not count as a crewman. Having been much delayed, they finally sailed from Cowes on the northern shore of the Isle of Wight, sorry if I blew that pronunciation, across from Portsmouth on November 22, 1633. Only three days out, near the silly islands off the western tip of Cornwall, a terrible storm slammed the ships. From the perspective of the Ark, the dove disappeared and was presumed lost, but actually she'd gone back to England. The Ark continued to struggle to the south, and after a brief respite, got slammed with a second two-day storm. Father White, the Jesuit chronicler, wrote that she drifted like a dish in the water. Amazingly, however, after that first terrible week, there was, quote, not one hour of bad weather, but so propitious navigation as our mariners never saw so sweet a passage. The Ark would travel south past Madeira, through the Canaries, and just to the northwest of Cape Verde, arriving at Barbados on January 3rd, 1634, an astonishing run of only five weeks from the end of the storm off Cornwell on November 29th. The Ark stayed at Barbados for three weeks, during which time the crew and passengers were astonished and delighted to see the tiny dove materialize in the harbor. Sometimes backup plans actually work. Barbados is the most windward of the windward islands, about as close as one can be to the new world end of the trades that blow west across the Atlantic, and which had carried Europeans from the old world for more than 140 years by 1634. By the time Leonard Calvert and his ships arrived, Barbadian merchants had been fleecing the tired provisioners of those ships that made it across for decades. In the words of Matthew Page Andrews, author of The Founding of Maryland, the islanders charged exorbitant prices for all foodstuffs except potatoes, which root grew in such abundance that one might carry off whole wagon loads of it for nothing. On January 24th, the reunited Marylanders sailed north, visiting one beautiful island after another right in the high season. They spent 10 days on St. Christopher, now known as St. Kitts, to take on fresh water and do maintenance, and departed Paradise for the mouth of the Chesapeake on February 7th. They arrived off Point Comfort and its fort on February 27th. Cecil, who'd been contending with Virginians trying to thwart his father's dream, had given Leonard orders to be careful when approaching their territory. Such was Cecil's concern that he had ordered Leonard to keep the ships out of range of the Virginian shore batteries. In the event, the Virginians greeted them cordially, if not enthusiastically. Governor John Harvey and his council received them respectfully and with humanity, apparently in accordance with the specific instructions of King Charles I, which presumably Cecil had arranged to be delivered even before Leonard and his ships arrived. The Virginians even provided the Marylanders with cattle, hogs, poultry, and rootstock for pears, peaches, and apples. Sounds pretty good, actually. 
The decorum of the official welcome did not, however, mean all was well. Leonard perceived correctly that Virginians who made their living trading with the Indians were not at all happy. And there was some popular irritation at the exalted status that Charles had conferred upon Maryland in its charter, that it be, quote, eminently distinguished above all other regions of that territory. You know, a little bit the way Oklahomans feel about Texas. There were also new rumors of native unrest. Thomas Claiborne, he who would cause so much trouble for the Calverts over the next 25 years, reported the rumor that the Indians were all in arms to resist us, a rumor that Leonard thought Claiborne himself had started. On March 3rd, Leonard and his settlers bid Virginia goodbye and sailed up the Chesapeake, entering the Potomac River on March 5th. A larger or more beautiful river, wrote Father White, I have never seen. The Thames compared with it can scarce be considered a rivulet. No undergrowth chokes the beautiful groves on each of its solid banks, so that you might drive a four-horse chariot among the trees. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recognize that as the results of Indian forest management. But there's no reason why Father White or even historians into the 20th century should have understood that. Having been warned of Indian unrest, they were no doubt troubled to see what they thought were signal fires throughout the country, and armed warriors paddling along in a, quote, canoe the size of an island. But no attack came. Within a day or two, still early in March, the settlers disembarked on St. Clement's Island, so named by Father White. They stayed there for a couple of weeks, and on March 25, 1634, the Feast of the Annunciation, they erected a cross, and the Catholics, including Governor Calvert, recited the appropriate litanies with, according to Father White, great emotion. Cross erected and litanies emoted, Governor Calvert and his closest advisors, his brother George Calvert, Deputy Governor, Jerome Hawley, a significant Catholic investor in the enterprise, and Thomas Cornwallis, another Catholic who would lead Maryland's fight against Thomas Claiborne, had three big items on their to-do list. Finding the site for permanent settlement, setting up the provincial government, and providing for protection against possible attack. In the matter of finding a site for the settlement, at some point during the stay on St. Clement's Island, Leonard took the dove and another pinnace, presumably brought over in pieces in the hold of the ark, up the Potomac by twists and turns almost 70 miles against the current. They reached an Indian village called Piscataqua, roughly opposite the future site of George Washington's home Mount Vernon. There they met an Englishman, Henry Fleet, a Protestant from Virginia whom Andrews describes as a prototype of sundry pioneers upon successive American frontiers who accustomed themselves for long periods to live with the Indians, during which time they learned the native tongue and adapted themselves to Indian ways. Fleet is worth a digression, and not only because he would point the would-be Marylanders toward the site of St. Mary's City and help them negotiate its purchase from the local tribe. He had led, and would lead, a fascinating life. 
Also, I owe it to him because in the episode on Maryland and Virginia going to war, I incorrectly reported Henry's last name is Steele, a faux pas I have since corrected in the show notes. Jeremy the docent had told me fleet, but for some reason my adult brain converted that to steel. So apologies all around and especially to Jeremy. The best source for more on Henry Fleet that I was able to find in the usual few minutes search was an article by one A.J. Morrison in the October 1921 issue of the William and Mary Quarterly, the Virginia Indian Trade to 1673. Suffice it to say that while the tone of a century-old journal article may not be up to contemporary standards, it remains as good a source as any for the facts of Fleet's life. Henry Fleet was the son of William Fleet, one of the original investors in the London, Virginia Company, and was born somewhere in the zone of 1598 to 1602. Sources differ on this point, and I don't have the energy to run down whether anybody has located Henry's baptismal record in the 102 years since A.J. Morrison wrote his article. We do know that Henry came to Virginia in 1621 and managed to avoid being killed when Opakankana sprung his colony-wide ambush in 1622. In 1623, however, Fleet was along with Henry Spellman, a Jamestown translator whom we have met before, who led more than 20 other English on a trading mission to the Anacostan tribe along the Potomac. They were looking to buy corn, probably because the ongoing war with the Powhatans, Powhatans had made it difficult to grow enough food. Long-standing and very attentive listeners will recall that Spellman had come to Jamestown in 1609, and as a teenager was sent to live with the paramount chief Powhatan to learn the local Algonquin. Spellman had helped Samuel Argyll, you guys remember him, I suspect, kidnap Matoica slash Pocahontas in 1613, perhaps married one of her sisters, and by 1623 knew his way around the region as well as anybody. Unfortunately, the Anacostans weren't susceptible to Spellman's smooth-talking ways. After professing friendship, they turned on the English and killed 19 of them, including Spellman. Henry Fleet would become their prisoner and would live with the Anacostans for four years until some of his friends, quote, contrived to ransom him in the spring of 1621. Now possessed of detailed knowledge of both the region and Algonquin, Fleet decided to go back to England and sell his services to wealthy merchant adventurers. In London, he hooked up with Cloberry and Company, the firm that would eventually back Thomas Claiborne in the Kent Island fiasco. By September 1627, Fleet was master of a Cloberry and Company ship of a hundred tons, the perhaps scandalously named Paramore and sailing back to the Chesapeake. Thereafter, he would become one of the most active of the English in the Indian trade. And so it was that Leonard and his men came across Fleet at Piscataqua. We will no doubt come back to Fleet, because he would remain an important player in the region until his death in 1661. In his honor, there's an island off the coast of Virginia named after him as well as a short road with expensive houses in Rockville, Maryland. Regarding the good ship Paramore, it's perhaps scandalously named 
because in the early 17th century, the word had competing definitions. According to the online etymology dictionary, quote, originally a term for Christ by women or the Virgin Mary by men, it came to mean darling sweetheart in the mid 14th century and wife, husband, also in a bad sense, mistress, concubine, a woman's male lover, clandestine lover, late 14th century, which from the 17th century became the only sense except in poetry. Well, given the alternative definitions of the word, the older giving the newer the cover of respectability, it seems to me that William Clobery probably had an impish sense of humor. Apologies for those nested digressions. Now back to 1634. Leonard engaged Fleet, who led the Marylanders through the region to the St. Mary's River, anchoring at the Indian town of Yokomoko. Now let's go to George Bancroft's account, some of which I quoted back in episode 112. Quote, The native inhabitants, having suffered from the superior power of the Susquehannas, who occupied the district between that river and the Delaware Bay, had already resolved to remove into places of more security, and many of them had already begun to migrate. It was easy, by presence of cloth and axes, of hoes and knives, to gain their goodwill, and to purchase their rights to the soil which they were preparing to abandon. With mutual promises of friendship and peace, they readily gave consent that the English should immediately occupy one half of their town, and after the harvest, the other half. Back to me. The purchased territory, about 30 miles in length, was originally called Augusta, Carolina, but soon became known as St. Mary's County, as it remains today. St. Mary's City, the Jamestown of Maryland, was soon established on the peninsula between the St. Mary's River and the Chesapeake Bay. Leonard Calvert would describe it as a most convenient harbor and pleasant country, which is also as it is today. Andrews, in the founding of Maryland, attributes the location to, quote, the most favored beginnings with reference to physical well-being of the settlers in American colonial history. In fact, since the mortality among the founders was almost negligible, the contrast is startling. Troubles were in time to visit the new settlement, but in the beginning, the chronicler of the expedition wrote that the natives move away every day, first one party and then another, and leave us their houses, lands, and cultivated fields. Surely this is like a miracle. That barbarous men, a few days arrayed in arms against us, should so willingly surrender themselves to us like lambs and deliver up to us themselves and their property. The finger of God is in this, and he purposes some great benefit to this nation. Some few, however, are allowed to dwell among us until next year. After that, the land is to be left entirely to us. Back to me. The aforementioned chronicler, the Catholic Father White, would not, however, meet with success in his efforts to evangelize among the locals. His only translator was the Protestant Henry Fleet, who White concluded had mistranslated the priest's message. Fleet, no doubt, thought he was doing the Indians a favor in this, papists being papists and all that. 
Having determined the site of the settlement, the colony's leaders needed to build at least some defenses and establish some form of government above and beyond the proprietor gets to do what he wants, which was the basic authority granted the Calverts and the Charter. Regarding the defense, by the end of May, Leonard would write his brother Cecil that, quote, We have seated ourselves within one half mile of the river within a palisade of 120 yards square with four flanks. We have mounted one piece of ordnance and placed six murderers in parts most convenient, a fortification we think sufficient to defend against any such weak enemies as we have reason to expect here. The enemies, it would turn out, would not be as weak as Leonard imagined, but that is for another time. Until then, or even after then, if you have the chance to spend an afternoon at the site of St. Mary's City, an easy jaunt from Washington, it's worth your time. There remained the matter of forming a government, a non-trivial undertaking given the importance of religion in such matters and the confessional division between the leading men of the colony, most if not all of whom were Catholics, and the rank and file who were not. Cecil Lord Baltimore had given his brother detailed instructions for the governance of the new colony, including its opening ceremonies. Leonard and his inner circle, Brother George and Commissioners Hawley and Cornwallis, assembled the people and read the letters patent of His Majesty Charles I. Then Leonard passed along his lordship's objectives for the Palatinate, those being, first, to honor God by converting Indians to Christianity, importantly with no proviso as to the type of Christianity. Second, to augment His Majesty's empire in America by reducing them under the subjection of the crown, in-your-face imperialism, I'd say, and third, for the profit of his majesty's countrymen as are willing to adventure their fortunes and themselves in it. Then the oath of allegiance to his majesty was administered, and all so swore. There is, thankfully, no suggestion in the historical record that anybody had their fingers crossed when they did it. The next order of business was to grow food. It being May on the Chesapeake, it was not too late to get cracking. Now let's go to Andrew's account. Quote, The instructions of Lord Baltimore indicate that he was well aware of the mistake at Jamestown and Plymouth. First, in regard to the holding of property in common in both these plantations. And second, the subsequent blunder at Jamestown, when under the stimulus of profits and tobacco growing, actual famine had faced the older settlement for lack of attention to the cultivation of foodstuffs. Hence it was that the proprietary of Maryland directed that sufficient provisions of victual should be planted yearly before labor should be diverted to other channels. Because of this carefully considered plan, the Calverts, it must be said, can do a little wrong as far as Andrews is concerned. Together with its fortunate location, no colony prospered so quickly. Unlike the early settlers at Jamestown and Plymouth, each freeman at St. Mary's anticipated reaping the product of his own industry. He became at once an individual owner, whilst those who were bound out to service for a term of years could look forward to the future, 
when they likewise would be freemen and owners of property. Back to me. Shorn of the Calvert love, Andrews is almost certainly correct about this. Collective or communal farming almost always leads to big food shortages, just as it does in Cuba today. He is also almost certainly right that the Calverts, plugged into the Virginia company as they were, knew all about the Jamestown experience, where collective farming had persisted for more than a dozen years after first settlement, a period during which 80% of new arrivals died. And, of course, they were also on the Council for New England, so that they would have read the various early narratives out of New Plymouth. It also must be remembered, however, that Andrews was writing in 1933, a period when socialism and anti-socialism were very much topics of discussion in American politics. Perhaps this is a scurrilous charge, but it at least feels to me as though Andrews is not so subtly using the Maryland experience to argue that individual ownership of property is the right way to go. Regardless, the production of food and even that first year was such that the Marylanders produced enough surplus to send a load of corn in the Dove for sale in New England. Maryland boosterism it may be, but no other early English colony did anything at all like that. The productivity of the colony invites the question, how did the Lord Proprietor, who at the beginning of the venture owned, from the English point of view, all the two million or so acres within the borders of chartered Maryland, grant land to his settlers. Cecil had induced prospective settlers with something akin to the headright system that had been used in Virginia. Wesley Frank Craven, author of The Southern Colonies in the 17th Century, describes it, quote, For the first adventurers... Every man going at his own cost or sending a deputy in command with able men between the ages of 16 and 50 would receive 2,000 acres for every five such men. The land would lie in one place and be erected into a manor with all such royalties and privileges as are usually belonging to manors in England, the right to hold courts leet and baron included." That's some medieval stuff you really don't need to know. Those following within two years after the first settlement would receive with similar rights of jurisdiction 2,000 acres for every 10 men. When migrating in less force, a man could claim 100 acres each for himself, wife, and every servant, and 50 acres for every child under 16. Though in detail and form, there were significant differences Lord Baltimore had followed the basic features of the Virginia land system, use of the land to underwrite the settlement of the colony, and use of the headright as a unit of apportionment. As in Virginia, special consideration was accorded to those bearing the brunt of the first effort. By 1642, it required the transportation of 20 persons to secure a manorial grant of 2,000 acres, and the headright for those carrying a lesser number had been reduced to 50 acres, which was the headright in Virginia. The quit rent, too, was fixed at the Virginia rate of two shillings per 100 acres. Back to me. Friendly reminder, under the old system, there were 20 shillings to a pound. So a 
2,000-acre grant would generate a quit rent of two pounds per year. But what was a quit rent? As one might have surmised from Craven's passage and other details, the Lord's Baltimore set up a sort of neo-feudal system based on old English manorial rights and traditions, generalizing mightily. Individuals who held land under that system owed the lord of the manor certain services, perhaps to serve in combat or to share crops in return for their land. Quit rents were small payments that had evolved to substitute for those services. The Calverts would collect those quit rents in Maryland almost all the way to the American Revolution. At two pounds per year for a 2,000-acre manor, the quit rents would not have been the major part of their income. But it was, as Texans would say, nice mailbox money. Of course, long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that even as the first Marylanders were building their palisade, clearing fields, and planting crops, in that first summer, Cecil would direct Leonard to seize Kent Island from Thomas Claiborne, who had occupied it two years before to use as a base for his trading on behalf of Clobery and Company, the same outfit that had backed Henry Fleet. We covered all of that a few months back in our episode, That Time Maryland and Virginia Went to War. So please give that a listen if you've not done so. There were three other big topics in early Maryland. The relationship of the colony with the tribes of the region, disputes over governance, and the earliest green shoots of religious toleration, even before Roger Williams established Providence. This episode already being of proper length, we will cover those as my muse dictates. Maybe next time, but maybe a few weeks hence. It all depends on how my reading on New Sweden proceeds. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website, and follow me on Twitter to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly but not only history-related topics. Until next time.